gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 103, the review segment for Friday, January 22nd, 2016. It's cold outside. It snowed in Brooklyn today. So you know what that means. It's time to review The Revenant. My name, <laughs> my name is Katie Rich, and uh, I have a confession to make. I liked The Revenant, which is basically why we're talking about this. Because a lot of people do. Don't feel bad. A lot of people feel do, bad that we but, don't like it that much. But when The Revenant got uh, 12 Oscar nominations, it definitely kind of, you know how like the Birdman backlash took a little while to settle in kind of after the Oscars? Uh, it kind of settled in immediately for The Revenant. It has definitely become the uh, poster child for... You know, whatever excess in Oscar nominations people didn't want to see happen. Which, you know, I didn't like Birdman either. I kind of get where it's coming from. But uh, but The Revenant worked for me. And uh, I can talk Wait, about set, why. Wait, set up. You've actually read the book I did. The Revenant as so, well. Which so. is better than the movie. Like, listen, The Revenant was not on my top ten. I'm not going to sit here and say it was a flawless movie, obviously, as we get into it. Uh, but it is uh, inspired by a true story. The book was kind of a fictionalization of it as well. About this uh, real guy named Hugh Glass who... Was on a fur trapping expedition in. Uh, <laughs> Just Scott the yes. Hugh Glass. Hugh Glass always sounds like it should be one word. Hugh, Hugh, yes. Wasn't Hugh Glass um, Jan's made up boyfriend yeah, no, that was in George the Brady Glass. Bunch? George oh, Glass. I always Sorry. do think they call me the kids. They call me Mr. Glass. <laughs> oh, I, yes. So okay. Glass. So, real guy I was on a fur trapping expedition uh, in on the Missouri River. I believe they were in kind of like northern Missouri or South Dakota-ish. Uh, this is all kind of <laughs> South Dakota-ish. Uh, <laughs> immediately post Civil War, United States. The West is still is still extremely wild. This guy was an experienced outdoorsman. He was kind of the guy who could, uh, you know, help them navigate the Indian tribes and figure out how to track game and all this stuff. And uh, he got attacked by a bear. And the leader of this expedition, who's played by uh, Donald Gleason in the movie, that guy who's been in everything this year. And who uh, you did a lovely interview with on yes, your he, stupid uh, other podcast. He, yeah, no, he's extremely charming. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's how you it. get. Oh, because it's 20. Oh, it's all coming together now. OK, sorry. What? I'm just thinking of how uh, who runs no, I think that, that podcast. Was a joke. No, I, no, it's not. The, the podcast is not actually owned by 20th Century Fox. <laughs> oh, like, I didn't get that. Podcast. I thought you were being serious. I don't know. It's no. Vanity Fair, man. Who it's, knows uh, what happens it's, over there? It's, 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 it's run by the Panoply Network, which is run by Slate. This is not about little gold men. Okay. It's about the Revenant. Side. We're reviewing your commentary on the Revenant <laughs> on that podcast. If you want to have any clue as to what the hell I'm talking about, go listen to our main episode from this week. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, so uh, Donald Gleason decides that uh, the expedition has to move forward without him to look after him either until he gets better enough to walk or die, which is what everyone thinks is going to happen. The bear attack is pretty brutal. We see it all happen. In extreme so brutal that it's been mistaken uh, as rape. Which is still the best rumor to crop up for Oscar season. I mean, I think it helped that movie enormously. Well, we can get into that. Uh, so t- Tom Hardy and Will Poulter, uh, Tom Hardy is kind of is this uh, – you know, hard scrabble guy named Fitzgerald and uh, this kid, Will Poulter, who's actually playing a very well-known real character. This guy who became like a very famous frontiersman whose name I can't think of off the top of my head right now, but, uh, Bridger. Yeah. Um, Jim Bridger, I think. And, uh, he, but he's playing him as a young man. So they're in charge of looking after Leonardo DiCaprio. And then for various reasons, uh, the young kid gets convinced that, uh, Leo has died and, uh, they leave him. So then, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio playing Hugh Glass, basically uh, vows revenge and crawls and scraps his way across many miles of wilderness to find 
Fitzgerald and uh, he vows yeah. revenge, but you don't actually hear him do that because he's just slobbering on himself yes. the entire time. <laughs> yeah. Well, his throat has been ripped out by a bear, so he has a hard time speaking. Um, so the, what it's what it's celebrated about this movie, as you've probably heard, is that it's got the cinematography from Emmanuel Lebeski, a two-time back-to-back Oscar winner. Chivo. Almost, yeah, we can call him Chivo for assholes. We can't going to. Um, it's almost filmed in, entirely filmed in natural light. It's filmed up in uh, northern Canada and then at the very end in Argentina. And it's pretty incredible landscape. And you've got Leonardo DiCaprio, as you've also surely heard, going through a lot of the elements for the sake of this role. There's a shot that I was pretty impressed by where you see he's he's gotten in a river to escape from these Indians. And you see him kind of crawl out onto a bank wearing this very heavy fur and kind of get out and dry himself off in the snow. And Leonardo DiCaprio did that. He got into a freezing river and climbed out in the snow. There's no faking that. And there's they something had about twelve the, supermodels in bikinis waiting for him did. in a tent. I mean, you know, man's <laughs> man's got to have a motivation. Got to put the carrot on the end of the stick. So the, there's an impressiveness to the um, to what they're doing out in the elements. So you know, all the cameras they've hauled up the mountain. It's kind of got. It's a very like macho, like John Huston way of looking at making a movie that uh, I was impressed by. There were a lot of moments in The Revenant where I thought this is why. We make movies. This is why kind of the giant expensive method of making movies exists. Is it so that like insane people with an overinflated sense of their macho-ness can go out and turn in something really beautiful? I think the themes of this movie kind of range from half interesting to silly, especially as it gets toward the end. What are they? Can you help me? Yeah, exactly. That's what I keep thinking. The most blatantly expressed theme is kind of the value of revenge and what you get out of it and whether or not it's worth it in the end. And I thought the main theme was how great are legs? They're really great if you want to walk around. So, the, I mean, the theme that I think is much more interesting that's spoken under the surface, and this isn't a particularly subtle, subtle movie, but I think this is, is kind of man's primordial desire to scratch civilization out of nature and what happens, what it takes to get there, what it took in real life to turn the West into something civilized and how, you know, brutal and bloody that process was. It's a kind of, it's a very honest Western in a way that, the westerns of the golden era of them definitely weren't, and few of them still are. I mean, there's been comparisons to Dances with Wolves, but I think it is a lot more honest about the horrible genocide and uh, brutality on both ends. Dances with bears that happen. Sure. Yeah, Dances I mean, and because I think uh, a major plot element that I don't think we've discussed so far is that Leonardo DiCaprio's son is half Pawnee Indian or Native American, uh, yes. and that his wife was murdered in, I think. One of the movie's most egregious, most egregious missteps is how they handle his memory and his wife. It starts. It's all very, very poorly developed. Um, she's a vision wife. And she's a vision flashbacks. wife. Yes. She's one of many Leonardo DiCaprio's many on-screen dead wives. Yeah, um, but you know, she makes Michelle Williams in Shutter Island look very well fleshed out. But <laughs> uh, they, uh, you never, you never really. At least I didn't really. Feel any sort of bond between Leonardo DiCaprio's character and his son? Um, Not at all. And I think you know, and, and I appreciated the dynamic between them, and I appreciate that the character you know had this uh, son, and it was considered to be it was uh, you know I think uh, um, controversial would be putting it mildly. I mean, I think that it was the the, the racism and whatnot that was rampant at the time. I mean, it was very. Um, unheard of, really. And uh, Tom Hardy's character is... The, the racism is probably a lot... Underplayed a lot more than it probably was in real life. Um, but... The, the movie is less racist than the... Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, but I don't I really... That, yeah, like, that's not a thing that comes through loud and clear, at least. Yeah. No one, no one really holds the fact that he has a Pawnee son against him the way that they hold, I don't know, 
not being able to his motor skills are not functioning against him. That's well, that's much that, worse. Like he's pretty well respected in this group. Like he's the yeah. guy who can really well, help. Well, but there's an element of survival. these two people are the only people who can get them home. The, so. the movie yeah. doesn't seem to understand what is interesting about it. And yeah. I'm watching the first 20 minutes and I'm thinking like it's such an incredible story of survival that in these times he is able to maintain this relationship with the son. They're able to work together as part of this larger operation. Um, and that Leonardo DiCaprio's character is able to defend his son and raise his son in this environment. And that's an incredible story. Ha- taking that son away from him. And in the book, as Katie, you well know, uh, there is no like there is no son. He's no no just like mad that they took his stuff. And well, I, he's yeah, and he's he's mad that they you know abandoned him. It's this very uh, honor oriented thing, which I think ties in much closer to the you know the man versus nature individualism. Yeah, uh, yeah. and so I think that like the I, the thought to introduce the son character into it is not in and of itself a bad one. I think the execution of it is god awful, and uh, it sets the movie off on such dis- despite how incredibly uh, fluid that that first scene is and how they shot it, how they sort of go from. Uh, each person who's murdered or kills the, someone, the and they go to the next this, person, this and the raid, next person, this raid on the fur camp. Yeah, it's the it's a this big action scene. It's a hell of a. It's really the second scene. The first scene is an utter embarrassment in about you know with this ghost What's wife. The, uh, second wait, I don't because the first scene is the ghost wife, and the second scene is the attack. Um, uh, but I I, literally, most of the ghost wife scenes have left my brain. And like, I think there's even a quote on screen. I can't remember. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a quote. Uh, but. I, I mean, I think you know, the movie looks stunning and I really, you know, I have to admire any movie that can get away with making like 130, 140, however many millions of dollars this movie cost. Like it was a lot. Over 200, I think. Over 200. Wow. I think it ballooned over budget. Uh, yeah. But for, you know, for all of its flaws, and there are too many to mention, uh, that they made something this weird and they did so in a way that was so punishing to, in order to get something real rather than fake it when, you know, in all places where they could. The bear is CG, but it's actually in a pretty remarkable feat of CG. It's really hard in this day and age to um, not applaud the the effort. And I know the movie has gotten a bad rap because it's been rewarded. It's been awarded for that effort more than anything else, but I do think that just from a financial level, bless so Alejandro Gonzalez and Dorito and team, uh, they want to go get cold, that's their business, and I applaud them having the wherewithal to do it, but it sounded like there was one guy, judging by their Golden Globe speeches, who really had the pockets that were deep enough to make this happen and believed in making it happen in their way, uh, and I but think it's cool. What, that they it's not that. weird. Like, that's that's part of the problem. There, there's two major things that stand out to me about this that kind of undermine the, the beauty, the inherent beauty of it, and what's just cool about seeing Tom Hardy and Leonardo DiCaprio like versus each other in this revenge film. That premise sounds amazing. Um, but two things undermine it. One, you never feel, you know, the narrative here is that they went out and shot this in the woods, as you were describing, Katie. They're all natural light. That's really that cold. He really did all this stuff. I never felt it. Not for one minute do I feel like the the ground and the the ice and there's no ecology to this to this world that they've set and up. the it's narrative like, cheats really take away from that. Like the fact 
that he so conveniently comes across a Native American who's going to give him his bison liver to eat and like so conveniently runs his horse off a cliff in a scene that made me laugh out loud in the theater. Oh, the movie is uh, hilarious and I don't think it's on no, purpose, it, but it's it's like a Mr. Bill short. <laughs> I mean, he's constantly being squashed or thrown over cliffs or like just being brutalized and it's hilarious. And that cliff and I'm just, came out like, of I'm nowhere. I'm laughing at it though. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, um, and you know, but it's like this fact that the story, the incident is so unbelievable, really takes away from how believable it's But that's the thing. Be. Like, if this was a psychedelic spirit journey, that would be radical and kind of cool to have this, like, real, just crazy walkabout. But it's it's not that. It's, it's still caught up in its own plot because we keep cutting back to Tom Hardy and the actions at the camp when they make it back or, you know, the, the plot of the whole thing, the politics of the Old hmm. West and all of that's kind of bleeding in. You know, Leo doesn't really do very much in this movie. It's definitely one of his uh, oh, unaccomplished performances for me. This is where you're the most wrong about this movie. Well, let me say, before we just talk about Leo, who is going to win the Oscar or whatever, uh, kind of uh, piggybacking off what David said, my second point about how it's undermining itself is the motivations. You know, why does Tom Hardy's character leave Leo behind? Like, uh, spoiler alert, I guess, uh, kill his son. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you know, he, he's, he why does he, it, there, there these things just happen on their tail? I no, mean, they definitely are. I mean, it, there's an explanation for it, but the momentum, it just feels like a total gear shift that doesn't click with what we've seen before. Well, I, I think also you know, the this idea isn't is a that group that's Tom Hardy, together. and this is something you see reflected in 2015, that Tom Hardy thinks less of his son's life and less of its value. I mean, he sure. uh, has a much easier but maybe time his character isn't fleshed out enough like i don't see yes. his character when he actually takes this murderous makes this murderous act i don't i don't see that built into his character he's a you don't bad think he did a good job of making a murderer <laughs> <laughs> see the last episode um no that's exactly it i mean i just he seems like he's making a point you know if you have this guy who is in a coma who needs to be hauled up icy cliffs like maybe you do leave him behind no it's not crazy point that's kind of the whole i like that's what's interesting about this movie like so when you're right when he takes this turn he it just doesn't need to be that villainous i mean he's looking out for himself he's doing what a lot of people did on the frontier like i mean he is villainous because he's a asshole and you get that i think you get that through all of his interactions with people before then but he's doing what is to him a rational decision. Well, he does and save you see it in like, the way that um, he that saves Roger, Will Poulter's life, right? Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you see it in like the way. So that why Will does Poulter the movie choose along with them to so be wait, so wait, black and white about wait, it? Wait, you started off talking about Leo and how he doesn't do anything, and you still haven't made that point. <laughs> he oh, has well, to make I was that, saying that we were self-evident. I mean, we were going to oh, get guys, there. Come on. Well, I'm just saying, if you don't feel this environment at all through the filmmaking, you're certainly not going to feel it as Leo fakes his way i mean come on this is a movie production he's still there's a lot of cheats going on to make this uh make make the star comfortable and yeah, I, mean, no I just don't see him really getting his cliff. hands dirty like he can be foaming at the mouth or whatever crawling through dirt i just don't feel it at any point and if you're not going to have any dialogue you're going to put rest the entire movie's shoulders on this one guy's physical performance you need to get someone who's really physical and it doesn't come through for me. I, I have no qualms about Leo's performance. My only qualm about it is that it's one of the least – like uh, th- that this should be the movie he wins an Oscar for is absurd. Well, um, whatever. That, that happens at the Oscars. Yes, it does. Uh, but nevertheless, it's happening here. Um, but 
I, I think that also less about where it has these characters form their antagonistic relationship. It, I was more bothered by where it takes them. I think that the last 20 minutes of this movie are just so generic and so bad. Uh, you know, this whole, it's very generic. Oh my God. I couldn't, for a movie, again, this is a matter of contrast for a movie that's so, uh, outlandish and aggressive about how it's going to shoot certain things. It's so willfully different to have a story that is so banal and odd. I mean, it's familiar. Two and a half hours go by, but, and you're still like, that's it. There's gotta be something else happening here. Yeah. It's, I really, uh, this whole movie seems like a miscalculation to me. Um, and I, I don't think it's going to, uh, win best picture. I also don't think it's going to be really talked about in the future. Um, and, uh, but it's beautiful. I'll say that. I want the calendar version. So to speak up for Leonardo DiCaprio uh, briefly, because I feel like that's what most people are oh. going to talking about this for in the future. I think what he, he so he's playing a character who is kind of a superhero. Like he's this guy who knows everything about the frontier. The only way he can survive any of this is because he has all of this knowledge, which he has clearly earned. And I think DiCaprio shows you how he's earned it. He shows you the work of not just like somehow surviving falling off a cliff, but like knowing to sleep inside a horse and what it takes to cut that horse open. And it's not just a matter of being like, here's how hard I'm working, but you see the brain working behind it and you see his conflict and other things that he chooses to do and the way that he makes choices and Man. the way he interacts with natives. Like, I think he's doing a lot with I, being really silent. I, I think, wish there was the just... Stop interrupting sorry. me. No, go. I thought you were done. I don't think he gets enough credit for the work that he does when he's silent because he's done a lot of very talky roles. But I think he's done... He does a lot with various still, quiet facial expressions and this is kind of his best opportunity to do that. Not that I think this is his best performance, but I think there's a lot of credit for him in what he does. Also, Ryuichi Sakamoto's score is absolutely essential. Uh, and I haunting, but it doesn't feel that fresh. Uh, well, I would highly recommend just, I mean, uh, it's Lisa Myers, fresh or not, I've enjoyed it more than any other part of the movie. Uh, we will in no way enhance by actually seeing the film. So it works independently. Go on iTunes, anything it's been, by Ryuichi It's provided Sakamoto some very good work music. I've got to um, say. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, Katie, what I was going to say was I wish that I could, see the gears turning in Leo's brain during this movie. I think of something like the Martian where it all has to be spoken out loud. And that's probably, it probably doesn't have to be that way. A great script could show and not tell that. And I want a little more of the problem solving perhaps out of this movie. Hmm. Just, you know, I love the book um, hatchet, you know, which is uh, like boy, a seventh grade classic, right? It really is. I, I still want to see that as a movie someday. I think they made a half-assed TV version at some point. But like, you know, uh, 10th grader goes down in the middle of the woods, has to start a fire. I guess we get that in Castaway a little bit. But like just the process of putting yourself back together. Leo is a superhero. He doesn't have to. He's just automatically going to crawl through the ground and work his legs back into shape or steal a horse or do this or that. Um, also, what what is that whole French trappers side plot thing? There's all, there's, and the, the Native Americans looking for their daughter, the missing daughter. All of this stuff is just so. Oh, I forgot about them. It doesn't yeah. seem well massaged into the main theme, which I think you're right, Katie. It's what it's aiming for is the kind of the the development of the the West and uh, and this the weird politics of of. You know, the wild, but it doesn't really all click together. And Leo is really the person who should be bringing it together. 
and you're not. He's just he's just a one-dimensional, mm-hmm. I can do this and I will seek revenge. One note mm-hmm. the whole time. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I, I don't see what he's trying to do as one note. I mean, the fact that he was trying to start a family that got ruined by the crazy politics of the West, the fact that he's making moral choices, like when he you know, interacts with those French trappers, which I you know, wasn't crazy about, but the choice that he makes is really interesting in terms of the theme of trying to carve society out of this world. Is why I think the flashbacks to Tom Hardy and Will Poulter and Donald Gleason, especially at the fort, are really interesting because you're seeing Gleason, this guy who like has money and like is trying to like communicate with the mainland and how overmatched he is by what's out there. Like there's a lot in the, I, I agree, the Indians looking for their daughter is pretty stupid. Um, so there, I mean, there's a lot of missteps in this, but I, I think that like when you're talking about this movie being hilarious and I can't fault you for this, like I do this in movies too, but there's a way that you buy in with the movie and you kind of let it be as self-serious or, you know, be like, this, this is a thing that's happening to a guy. You kind of follow it on its own rules and I did that with the Revenant, basically until the final shot. I mean, the, my problem I, is that a step too far. I, I think I I thought I was mm-hmm. like I thought I was going along with what this movie was selling, and then it would somehow find ways to be more ridiculous than I was prepared for. It even uh, has like a com or the comet falling from yes. Birdman again. Oh yeah, Oof, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of dumb stuff in this movie. Well, that's it. If it was just a boiled down pulpy revenge movie set. In the 1820 frontier, that's awesome. That sounds great. And you know, in two, I don't know if a lot of the staging and the picturesque visuals in this are all Lubeski, or if Inuratu dreams this up and sure, Lubeski I mean, enables Lubezki it. Lubeski doesn't just like go out there and do whatever he wants. Like the director has to want it. It's true, but I think that um, if they just made a. You know, Inuritu is he finds the whole idea of like an action movie or a superhero movie repellent, and yet he's basically making them, um, but wants them to be headier than they really call for. Uh, this would be, just be great if it was streamlined and just about the act of revenge and the wild of man. It sounds like. Um, have you seen a uh, Slow West? No, I haven't. It sounds kind of like what you want. Yeah, Slow West well, is great. It's on Amazon. It's I'll, not specifically I'll stream it. about uh, about revenge, but it's a very nice streamlined thriller. Uh, Western uh, Western thriller with uh, really good performances. I, ju- I just can't get beyond Inarito being, you know, he got to start in commercials, right? And all of his movies for me feel like commercials. I mean, a like lot their of ideas got their start in commercials. No, it's they not- do. I'm, I'm just saying he can't escape shooting commercials. His films feel like I'm selling you an emotion, I'm selling a product, and I'm going to use the language of film that you know already. Like we know what is picturesque or we know how cameras move to express certain ideas and what's going to sweep you up. You know, the action scene in the beginning of this film is a lot like he's done a few soccer uh, spots that it really reminds me of. And I just don't think he can escape selling product as if emotion is a commodity like a Nike sneaker. Uh, And I think that's the Revenant's biggest problem. It's not a story about something about real people it's selling you the idea of that and hoping you'll be impressed and buy it. Mm. I think if they took the wife flashbacks out of this movie, <laughs> you're probably right. Like, like, like 80% more people would like it. Cause those are not, I'll wait idea. for Topher Grace's cut of uh, the Revenant. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Uh, it sounds like a lot of people are seeing the Revenant. So, uh, hopefully it's true. Uh, you, the listeners have had a chance to see it as well. And, uh, yeah, well, so my my whole family watched it, or lots of them watched it over Christmas, and my mom didn't because she just didn't think she could handle it. And then she said, you know, I really hate for Leo to win uh, the Oscar for a movie I haven't seen, so maybe this is why everyone's going to see it. They, uh, they've they been pulling for Leo all this time. 
his whole time. His disciples. Yeah. He's, uh, you, you know, he's the most uh, overdue Oscar actor in history. So obviously it's his time. Daniel Boone was a man. Yes, a big man. With an eye like an eagle and as tall as a mountain was he. Daniel Boone was a man. Yes, a big man. He was brave, he was fearless, and as tough as a mighty oak tree. From the coonskin cap on the top of old Dan to the heel of his rawhide shoe. The ribbonest, roaringest, finest man the frontier ever knew. Daniel Boone was a man, yes a big man. What a boom, what a doer, what a dream come a truer was he. As you're all listening to this, I will have seen The Fifth Wave, but haven't yet. And uh, Patches and David will be at Sundance, which will probably have many movies better than The Fifth Wave. Um, well, let's not go crazy. So, yeah. Um, well, I guess as we sign off, uh, let us know where we can find your Sundance coverage. I will. Wait, I'll just wrap up now. Yeah. This is uh, the end of the episode. Yeah, no, there's, so There's nothing else to add. This is The Fifth Wave. Um, I'm Matt Patches. Entertainment editor at Thrillist.com. And I guess technically this is like the first or second, the second day of, of Sundance. So hopefully I've posted something on Thrillist. Already? And, uh, on, <laughs> no. Come on. <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. Yeah, for opening night, isn't that, I don't think this year is going to have the next whiplash, no. as they now say, uh, unfortunately. But uh, I'll next, be tweeting. Uh, Crystal Fairy, which is the Sundance opening night movie I remember. That is true. And that will played very well. Okay. Um It'll be interesting. I don't know. This year, no I'm a little, it. I'm a little worried. David posted a preview. Olive also posted a preview, but I don't know. David, are, were you were you impressed by the lineup? Uh, I always think I always get a little rankled when people say or tweet like, "Oh my God, it's an incredible lineup," or like, "I've you know, they, they just you don't know, you don't know." That's right. the point of it. Um, I've seen it's the fun of it. Five or six films. Uh, some of them have been god awful. Some of them have been good. Uh, you but know. David, there are films by Kelly Reichert and Kenneth Lonergan. Like right, that alone I, that's exciting. Is a better batting average than your average Sundance. That, that's very exciting. Um, I just want to know: Will Jupiter Ascending play again this year? Please. That's what I'm hoping. Uh, I will say. What was I going to say? There is no World of Tomorrow. So, but you know, by going into Sundance last year, you know that already. I already knew. No, I'd seen World of Tomorrow before I even went, and I knew that I had a film that I was near and dear to my heart before I even got on the plane. Uh, so that took off some of the pressure and I don't have that this year, but, uh, we'll see. Hey, it's four days before you fly. So who knows? Who knows? And also David, belated congratulations on Will of Tomorrow's Oscar nomination. Thank you. I'm sure you made that happen. I did. Uh, what? <laughs> I was very, I was very happy for you. Uh, I did. I had no part in making that Oscar nomination happen, but I was very, very happy for it. And I'm very, uh, concerned about its prospects. I, I've been trying to Don't figure out. Don't underestimate that Pixar film. Everyone loves it. Yeah. If if the voters have to watch all of the films, I think World of Tomorrow will win in a walk. If they don't, I think that it's almost certain that Sanjay Super Team will win. I think they do. Yeah. I think they're kind of strict about it. All right. Well, in that case, Godspeed, Don Hertzfeld. Uh, I, well, the whole Oscar charade will have been worth it to see someone uh, like him, especially someone who I think is on the shyer side. Uh <laughs> well, uh, always yeah. fun to see them give an Oscar speech, but he's the, the best. Can't win Best Picture, right? It'll be as world. deserved, if not more so, than any other Oscar that goes out. So I really hope that it happens. Okay, now I'm gonna wrap up. <laughs> uh, Matt Patches, Thrillist Entertainment 
Sundance at Mr. Patches. Uh, David Ehrlich, I am a staff writer for Rolling Stone and a reviewer for Slate, although I don't think I'll be reviewing any movies for Slate out of Sundance, but I'll be writing about it, and you can follow me uh, on Twitter at David Ehrlich, where I will be talking about all the stuff. Are you going to be reviewing Kung Fu Panda 3? And Patches Slate? and I, if you want to ship some things, if you want to uh, get... <laughs> get you care packages? Uh, oh, no, I meant like romantically, but uh, oh. uh, <laughs> for, for your fighting in the war fandom. Uh, Patches and myself and Jordan Hoffman will all be staying in the same condo. So. That's who's true. A, who's sharing the room with the twin beds? Oh, David and I share that room, and I bought you nasal and strips. You have the main bed, even though you're the one who's been renting that condo for years. He pays more. Well, he pays more, so there wow. you go. But I, I, I bought nasal strips just so I don't snore as loudly and keep David up. Oh, good. Oh, that's nice. Uh, I'm a good friend. I'm, I'm a veteran of the room with twin beds, and I will tell you, <laughs> Patches snores. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. Spoiler. I'm halfway to Sundance, so find me uh, sad and alone in New York uh, watching The People versus O.J. Simpson, probably, um, at VanityFair.com, and, uh, you know, doing all the normal other things that I get to do. And you guys can all come back and tell me what is this year's Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Oh, yeah, and that does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. <laughs> and uh, we'll be back, uh, half of us in Utah... Uh, next week. Don't taste down my back and tell me it's raining.